1 Corinthians 15, 17, he says this. He says, if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. In other, way, in other words, what he's saying is that in order for our faith in Jesus to be authentic, Jesus had to have risen from the dead. In, in other words, what he's saying is, in, in order for us to have any confidence at all that our sins are forgiven and that we have a future with him in heaven, the resurrection has to be true. So the question looms, is it true? Is it true that Jesus rose from the dead or is it just another holiday that we celebrate because everybody else celebrates it or is it true? A few verses later, in verse 20, Paul says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. He says, in fact, it is true. What we believe is true. Here's some other things that we believe as Christians, as followers of Jesus. We believe in Jesus, to start with, right? We believe in Jesus. We believe He is the Son of God. We believe that He became a human being, 100% human being, born of a virgin in the city of Bethlehem. He was 100% human, and he was also 100% God the whole time. We believe that he lived a sinless life. He never sinned. We believe he died for our sins. We believe he rose from the dead, the resurrection. And we believe he ascended into heaven leaving us instructions to share the good news and to help people connect with Jesus and follow him. And we call that making disciples. That's what we believe. But is it true? Paul says it's so important that if it isn't true, then we're fools. Are we fools? Is it true? Well, here's something that I've learned in my life. We as humans like proof. We like proof, right? And someone makes a claim about something, what do we say? Prove it, right? I remember when I was in elementary school, I was in like third or fourth grade, Toledo Elementary School in Redondo Beach. Can I get a what, what? You guys all went to Toledo? I know my sister did. You did? That's awesome. We went to Toledo. Well, we had this kid when I was in, is there any third or fourth graders in here? Boom, that's how old I was when this happened. And we had this kid out in the playground that was a bragger. You guys ever met someone like that? Always bragging. And he used, he used to say things like, like uh, uh, I know all of these famous people. He'd name all these famous people. He'd be like, I know that person really well. He's like a really good friend of the family. And guess what we used to say? Prove it. And he never could. And then one day he was like, oh yeah, I'm a champion gymnast. Guess what we asked him? And on recess one day, we said, prove it, right? He wouldn't do it. Oh, I don't want, I just ate, right? Come on. So we didn't believe anything that he said because he couldn't prove it. We like proof. What we're going to look at today, and you guys can turn into your Bibles to John chapter 5. We're going back a couple years before the resurrection because we're walking through John together. And this text is so appropriate to Easter that we're just going to keep plugging right along. But in, in essence, what Jesus is doing, Jesus is making these claims. He's saying some things about himself that are so unbelievable, so 
uh, 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 astonishing that if they're true, then, then it was going to change everything. And these, these people called the Pharisees, they, they call them on it. They go, prove it. And in this section, we're going to see Jesus actually does just that. He says, I will prove it. And the first, the first part of your section, we're going to call it this. The value of a good witness. The value of a good witness. If you uh, are, are in a court setting, if you're a lawyer or, or, or if, if, if you're on trial, right, for something, what are two things that you really need in order to prove your case? The best two things that you can have is physical evidence, physical evidence, and good witnesses, Right? Physical evidence and good witnesses are what help you prove your case. Well, this is what Jesus says in John 5, 30. Now, he's just healed this guy. This guy couldn't walk. He couldn't use his legs. Jesus says to this guy, get up, pick up your mat, and walk. And, and the guy is healed. He gets strength back in his legs. A miracle happens, and he can walk. Now, he's carrying his bed mat that he usually lays on. And these Pharisees come up to this guy, and they go, what are you thinking? What are you thinking carrying your bed mat? It's the Sabbath. You're not allowed to carry your bed mat on the Sabbath. They make that into a big deal. And he says, well, Jesus told me to do it. So then they go to Jesus and they say, you're busted, dude. You can't do that. You can't carry a bed mat on the Sabbath. Everyone should know that. Of course, the Bible never says that. But these religious leaders had misinterpreted the scriptures to believe that that's what it was saying. And so they're basically saying to Jesus, you are disobeying God. You're disobeying God by breaking the Sabbath. And Jesus makes the argument, no, I'm not disobeying God. I'm actually obeying God. The Father has shown me to do these things, and that's what I'm doing. Now, do the Pharisees like that? Do they like being told that they're wrong? No. They want to kill Jesus because they say he's, he's, he's working on the Sabbath, which they think is wrong. And they're saying that he's saying that he's equal with God. Amazing claims. And so they say, prove it, right? And Jesus picks it up in John 5.30. Jesus says this to them. He goes, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just. What is Jesus saying? No, I'm true. I'm telling the truth. I'm right. You're wrong. I'm telling the truth. Do people like that when you'd say that? Absolutely no. No way. But that's exactly what Jesus is saying. My judgment is just or true. Because I seek not my own will, but the will of who, him who sent me. And he says, if I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There's another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. So first of all, Jesus makes this wildly unpopular claim. If Jesus made this in our day, it would be wildly unpopular. He's saying, I know what the truth is. This is the truth. Jesus is true. All these things that we believe are true. Do people like that? No. People don't like that. They want to believe what they want to believe, right? And in fact, a lot of people today will, will say that there is no absolute truth. There's no absolute truth, right? What you want to believe is true for you. What I want to believe is true for me. We Can't we all just get along and be tolerant of each other? It doesn't really, there is no way to know. There is no absolute truth. Here's the problem with that. It's an, it's an illogical absurdity to say that there is no absolute truth. Can you catch why? Because what are you doing? You're making an absolute truth statement that there is no absolute truth. You just contradicted yourself. 
So most intelligent people won't have that stance, but then what they will do, they'll take it to the next level, and they'll say, no, but the truth is, it must be so big that no one can really know what the truth is. As a matter of fact, back when I was in college at El Camino, I took a philosophy class, and my philosophy teacher did not believe in Jesus. And he told us what he believed, and he, and he wanted us to believe it, and he basically unpacked this story that's been told many times before. And how many of you guys like stories? Kids, you like stories? Who likes stories with pictures? Me too. This is my philosophy teacher. Right? This is my philosophy teacher. He doesn't believe in Jesus. Honestly, it's like 20-something years ago. I can't remember what his name is. Let's just call him Professor Know-It-All. So one day, Professor Know-It-All, I told him I believe in Jesus. He said, you're crazy. You can't believe in Jesus. He said, well, you don't really know the truth. You can't really know the truth because this is what life's really like, he said. He said, truth about religion, truth about life is really like a really big elephant. He said, it's like a really big elephant. We're thinking, Wow, you really are crazy with that green tie, right? And he said, no, let me explain. Truth is like a really big elephant, and we're all basically nearsighted. We can't barely see our hand in front of our face. And he said, the way that it works is that some religions, they grab onto truth, and they grab onto a part of truth, and it's not that they're wrong, it's just they're just grabbing onto a part of it. And, and, and one person will grab onto it, and they'll describe it like this. They'll say, it's long and tubular. It's like a big fire hose. What is that person grabbing onto, kids? The elephant's trunk, right? One person's grabbing onto the elephant's trunk, and he's describing, and he's saying, I'm, I've experienced it. This is what's true. And he says, another religious group, they'll grab onto this thing, and they'll, they'll, they'll hug onto it, and they'll say, no, it's not, like a, it's not like a fire hose. It's like a really big, huge tree trunk. What are they grabbing onto, kids? The elephant's leg, Right? And they're saying, it's just grabbing onto a different part of the elephant. And they're all really not wrong. They just have a different part of it. And then another person grabs onto it and says, no, it's like a floppy, kind of like a big, thick, furry blanket. What's he grabbing onto? The ear, right? And so the essence is, is that no religion's really wrong. They're always just grabbing onto a different part of the elephant. And they all are kind of right, but they just have a different part of it. So it sounds kind of good at first when you hear this, like, oh, then everyone can kind of be right. We can all be tolerant. No one's really wrong. What's the problem with this? Here's the problem. The problem is that Professor Know-It-All is claiming that we're all not nearsighted, and he's the only one that sees the big picture. How does he know that it's like an elephant? How does he have more truth than we do? How is he somehow elite? He's basically doing the same thing that he's claiming that we're doing and saying, I have a bigger picture than all of you do. Well, we, how do we make our claims? How do we know what's true? None of us really can say, I'm smarter than you or I'm more intelligent. Is that how we make our claim? No, we're saying Jesus is true. We're saying Jesus is can make those statements. Why? Because he's the only one that came from heaven. He's the only one that sees the big picture. We can't see the big picture. In some ways, my philosophy teacher was right. We can't see everything. We have to look beyond to somebody who has. We need a better witness. We need a better storyteller. We need someone who's been to heaven and seen it. And that's our claim. Not that we're smarter, but that we believe in Jesus 
who has the authority to make these claims because he is from heaven. And they're claims based on witnesses. Jesus, in the rest of this passage, is going to give five key points, five key witnesses, five key proofs to why he can say what he's saying and why he can do what he's doing. And they're all based on solid witness. And Jesus goes like this. He goes, in verse 31, he goes, if I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. What is he doing? Is Jesus saying it's not true unless, because I, no, he's, what he's saying is he's saying, I understand that you guys who he's talking to are very Jewish. And the way that they believe, the way that they think is this. They believe that the only way, you can't make a claim about yourself. You have to have other people. You have to have witnesses that will validate what you're saying. That's how they believe. And so that's how he's going to argue for his claims. They get this from the Old Testament. In Deuteronomy 19.15, it says this. It says, A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. You can't just have one guy say it, right? You can't say it yourself. He says, Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. Now, here's the thing. Witnesses are incredibly valuable. They're still valuable today. They're valuable in the court, right? Physical evidence and witnesses, but even beyond that, we, you, we, look, we look to witnesses all the time, each of us. We like, we like witnesses, right? The value of a good witness is this. We value other people's opinions. You know how I know that? Because there's whole websites designed for us to get people's opinions, right? If you're going to go to a restaurant you've never been to, what's Yelp say about it? How many people like it on Yelp? Or how many people have ever done this on Facebook? Facebook post, dear Facebook community, I'm looking for a new dentist. Does anybody know of a good dentist in Lomita? Hashtag, thanks in advance, right? We like people's opinions, right? We want to know what people think. If somebody, if, if somebody says, uh, 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 hey, this, this, is, this is really awesome, you should go do it. That, that we add value that way. And here's the other thing. The more witnesses, the better. How many of you guys have ever had this happen? This has happened to me before. Somebody like, goes, you got to go to this new restaurant. you got to go get this one burger. It's the best burger I've ever eaten. And then you go there and you're like, average. <laughs> right? This is the best movie. you got to go see this movie. It's hilarious. And you go there and you're like, not very, not very funny, right? So just one person, you can vary, right? They might have a different perspective, different opinion. They might have zero sense of humor, whatever, right? No taste buds. One witness is not good, but we like lots of witnesses. What if 20 people that you know and trust say, you got to go get that burger? Your confidence level goes up, right? We like lots of witnesses. And here's the other thing about the value of a good witness. They must be a witness with nothing to gain. You gotta have a witness with nothing to gain. Now, ladies, all the ladies, all the ladies in the house, let's have a conversation. You all know this, right? You do not go to Nordy's, right? You don't go to Nordstrom's at the new Delamo Mall, that, that one section. You don't go over there and go try on your Easter dress and then go to the lady that works there that makes commission off of you buying stuff and go, hey, do I look good in this dress? They're gonna tell you, yeah, you should buy like eight of those, right? Here's what you got to do, because you, you can't have somebody who has something to gain by it. You got to take your friend, ladies. I'm giving you some free advice. You got to take your friend who has zero filter, 
right? You know who I'm, you're talking about. The one who they have a thought and then they have no filter and they just say it, right? Yeah, you look horrible in that, right? No, that's who you need there, right? If you want to know the truth because they have nothing to gain. And Jesus moves on. He says, let me give you five pieces of solid proof that your belief in Christ is not futile and that you can know with confidence that your sins are forgiven and that there is a greater hope available to you. The first thing that he's going to say in exhibit one, he's going to say intelligent people like JTB, John the Baptist, believed in him. Some people will say this. Some people will say, hey, I, 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 that's cool. You believe in, in, in that religious stuff, but I don't really, I'm, I'm too smart for that. I'm too intelligent for that. I believe in science, right? Or I believe in philosophy or I believe in whatever. I've heard people say that as if, as if believing in Jesus is contradictory to science or, or those other things. And in fact, it is not. Some of the greatest scientists in history were Christians. They were believers in Jesus. Some of the greatest scientists today, some of the greatest philosophers, some of the most intelligent people believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, died on a cross for our sins, and rose from the dead, and is coming back. Intelligent people like John the Baptist believe, he says. In John uh, 5, 33, he goes, You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He says, John the Baptist was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light, but the testimony that I have is greater than that of John the Baptist. What he's saying is this. You guys had all this respect for John the Baptist, and yet listen to what he was saying. He was pointing to me and saying I was the Lamb of God to saying he needed to decrease and I needed to increase. John the Baptist was pointing to me the whole time. You guys had respect for him. That's exhibit A. Since then we have, we have thousands of brilliant minds who, who, who testify that, that Jesus is the Son of God. The second thing he says is that, that the things that Jesus did actually validated him. In verse 36 he says, For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I'm doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. Everywhere Jesus did, people were astonished by him. When Jesus would walk into a town, not everybody liked him. Some people loved him, but everybody respected him. Everybody took note of him. People were saying this, if he's not the son of God, how can he do the things that he's doing? That's what they're saying about him. In fact, he's, he's doing so many miraculous things, and they're saying he speaks with such authority. I believe him when he's talking. And then and in his character, he's so humble and compassionate. He's, he's reaching out to sinners that everyone else wants to shun. He's, 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 he's touching lepers. He tells the little children, come, and, and he spends time with them. He loves them. See, I've met people who have authority. I've met authoritative men. Have you? And I've met humble men. I've never seen anybody like Jesus, and neither had they. And that's what he's saying. He's saying, just look at who I am and what I'm doing. They authenticate who I am. He says, the heavenly Father affirms him. In verse 38, it says, and the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. God himself is witness on, on the witness stand for me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe 
the one who he has sent. Jesus heard from the Father when he was baptized, right? The Holy Spirit descended on him like a dove, and there was an audible voice from heaven that said, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. The Father authenticates Jesus. Not only that, the things that Jesus are doing are so in line with all of that the Old Testament is saying, and he's saying, but the problem is, is that you are reading the scriptures, but God is not alive in you. They're not, you're not abiding in the scriptures. You know information that you've learned about God, but you don't know God, because if you knew God, then you would know me when I show up. Right? That's his claim. The Heavenly Father affirms him. And he says, the word of God, scripture, points to Jesus. John 5, 39, you search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. You, yet you refuse to come to me that you may find life. As a matter of fact, there's so much prophecy in the Old Testament that's so pinpoint that Jesus actually fulfills. It is unbelievable. Do yourself a favor today. After you yelp where you're going to have for lunch, Google, give it a Google, Google, Jesus fulfills these prophecies. And look at all the stuff that Jesus fulfills from the Old Testament. He was born as God with us. That's what the Old Testament says. He'll be, his name will be Emmanuel, God with us. He was born of a Virgin Mary. It says that in the Bible, in the Old Testament, uh, 700 years before Jesus, it says he's going to be born of a virgin. It, it names the city that he's going to be born in, Bethlehem. It names the city that he's going to grow up in, right? He's going to be a Nazarene. It names the way that he's going to die with, with explicit detail, how he's going to die. He's gonna, the, the, it describes crucifixion. When they're making these prophecies, crucifixion hadn't even been invented. Crucifixion was invented by the Persians in 500 uh, A.D., And it was perfected by the Romans in Jesus' day. And thousands of years before that, people are talking about how he's going to be hung on a tree. He's going to be pierced. right? His side is going to be pierced. Things that you cannot predict about yourself, they predict, the scriptures predict about Jesus. He's saying, all of it points to me. And then in the New Testament, it all points back. We have eyewitnesses that saw all these things about Jesus and recorded it. Eyewitnesses of Jesus who had nothing to gain, nothing to gain like the Nordies lady. All they, all they gained was suffering and death for believing what they believed and claiming what they claimed. These are good witnesses. So the question, the real question is this. If the resurrection is true, why don't people believe? Why don't we all follow Jesus? If the resurrection is true, what we celebrate on Easter is that it is, in fact, great news. You have nothing to lose by believing and everything to gain by believing. And that's what Jesus talks about in the next section. He says, these are all the things. These are three things that you guys are missing out on because you're missing out on who I am. You're misunderstanding who I am. It is truly good news. The first thing he's going to say is that if you believe that Jesus rose from the dead, the offer is of a more significant life. He offers a more significant life. I don't know about you, but I know for most people, we come to a point in our life or many times in our life where we think this, there has to be something more. I don't know about you, but there's been times in my life where I thought, hey, when I get to that place in my life, when I finally get that, 
everything's going to be awesome. And I, all my problems will go away. Right? My biggest problems will go away. And life will be beautiful when I just get married. Right? When I just get that job. Right? I thought that when I get on the fire department, man, it's going to fix, not going to fix everything, but it's going to fix most of everything. Right? I found out after it happened it wasn't true. It didn't satisfy the way I thought it was. And Jesus is saying, I offer a more significant life. John 5, 40 goes, you, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I just want you to have life, and you refuse to come to me. Why? And he says, and I do not receive glory from my people. Why is that huge? Jesus, why does Jesus say that? He goes, you refuse to come to me that you might have life, and you don't glorify me. This is brilliant, what Jesus is saying. In Isaiah 43, 7, written 700 years before Jesus, a prophet named Isaiah, he pens this. He says, do you guys want to know what your purpose in life is? Do you? You want to know why you were created? I don't know. Maybe the Bible doesn't say. No, it it actually says exactly why you were created. Isaiah 43, 7 says, you were created for the glory of God. That means this. It means you were the glory of created for the glory of God means you were created to know God. And you were created to with your life make him known. You were created for the glory of God. You will find your satisfaction in being who you were created to be. Anything less than that will be less than satisfying. You were created for the glory of God. And Jesus here goes, it's so tragic. You don't believe in me, and you, and you, and you, so you don't have life. And you don't glorify me, so you don't have life. That is what life is. It, life is found in living for the glory of God. And yet you guys are missing out. And then he says, you guys are missing out on a deeper love that is available for you. I don't know about you, but I'm a super big people pleaser. I need affirmation. I found that out, right? I like it when people are uh, like me. I like it when people make a big deal about me. I like it when people show love to me. I hate it when people reject me. Anyone else like that? We just have this thing, in, in innate, another innate thing. We need to know that our life is matters. It's significant. We need to know that we're loved. Jesus is saying you're missing out on the greatest love of all. Verse 42, he says, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. It's tragic. You don't have the love of God within you. He says, I have come in my father's name and you did not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you'll receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? What Jesus is basically saying is, before Jesus came, there were lots of people came that claimed to be messiahs. These people came because the the people in, the the Jewish people, they wanted freedom from Rome. They were in tyranny from Rome. They wanted a revolution. They They wanted to have a war against Rome, win, and have their own kingdom back. And all these guys had come and say, I'm the guy. I'm the one that you guys are looking for. I'm the revolutionary. I'm him. Lots of people in history have said that. And they, and they got excited. Why did they get excited? Because those people were telling them what they wanted to hear. And Jesus said, when those people came and was telling you what you wanted to hear, you followed them. But now I'm coming and I'm not telling you what you want to hear, so you won't follow me. But he goes, look, what happened with all those people? Nothing. I'm the true. And here's the thing. Here's the thing. God loves you so much, he won't always tell you what you want to hear. Isn't that true of a good parent? 
what, what, what good parent is going to let their kid just do whatever they want and never say no? Yeah, sure, go run out in the middle of the street. It'll be awesome. Fire, doesn't it look cool? Touch it, right? We don't do that to our kids because we love them, right? And God loves us so much that he's telling them these truths, and they're like spoiled little brats going, I don't want to listen to you, Dad, right? That's what it's like, and he's saying, no, the things that I'm saying that you don't like, they're because I love you. And if you would just receive them, you would see that it's all in love. Jesus loves you enough to tell you the truth. Matter of fact, other religions will tell you, hey, follow this religion and you'll be fine. Everything will be awesome. The Bible says the exact opposite. He says, follow me and your life's going to be hard. Oh, that sounds good. No, he says, your life's going to be hard. I'm not going to fix everything. You're going to struggle. But I am going to be with you through every storm. That's Jesus' promise. And I will be with you through every storm. I will love you through every storm. That's his promise. It's a greater love because it's real. And it comes from the real creator of the universe who created you for the glory of God. And lastly, we'll have the worship team come back up. He says, and a a better hope. I told you that he gave you five pieces of evidence and I've given you four so far. Here's the fifth one. A better hope even than Moses. In John John 5, 45, he goes, do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is, there is one who accuses you, and it's Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me. For he wrote of me. But if you do not believe in his writings, how will you believe my words? In other words, what Jesus is saying to these Jewish people, he's like, look, your hope is in the fact that if you follow the Mosaic law well enough, if you do good enough, then God will be happy with you and he'll accept you. If you can just do good enough and follow the Mosaic law, follow Moses enough, then, then, then God will like you and he'll accept you. And he says, that is a horrible hope. Because what's the problem? None of us can do it. And so Jesus goes, look, your own hope, your own hope accuses you. You'll never be able to do it. You'll never be good enough. You'll never be able to, to, to earn your way to, to God. Never. And so he offers a better hope. He says the truth is you'll never be able to be good enough. To make God happy enough. To please God enough. And there's only one remedy. And Jesus says this is the remedy. If you guys can just see it, you can find life. You can find a greater love. You can have a better hope, a better future. That I came, Jesus came, because you can't be good enough. He came and he was good enough. He lived a sinless life. He died on a cross. And all of his sin was placed on Jesus. All of our sin was placed on Jesus. And he died for our sin. And if that was all that happened, he would be like everybody else, right? Everybody one day will face death. But here's the greater thing. On the third day, he rose from the dead. He ascended to heaven. And he's there now. And he's here now. And he's making the offer to anyone who will believe. Do you want significant life? Do you want life in Christ? Do you want a deeper love? Not not, not a God who's going to tell you whatever you want and be whatever you want him to be. He is who he is. 
but he loves you. Will you love him and find that love? Will you put your hope in him? Because the greatest promise that Jesus made was this. He told his disciples before he died, he said, he, he said it's, it's going to bother you when I'm dead. It's going it's to hurt for a while. But it's a good thing that I'm going. And he said, I'm going to go to heaven and I'm going to prepare a place for you. I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if I prepare a place for you, I will come back. And I will bring you to be with me. That's the heart of God. That's the heart of Easter. Jesus rose from the dead. It is the hinge that opens the door to all of this. To all who will believe. So where do we go from here? Maybe you're here and you've never given your life to Jesus. I can tell you this. The gateway to heaven is not a magic prayer. The gateway to heaven is, is knocking at your door, some of you guys. And all you need to do is to turn to him and say, Jesus, yes, I believe. And I want you. I want you to take over my life. I want you to forgive my sins. You right now could turn your life over to Jesus. Give him the keys to your car. Let him drive the rest of the way. Maybe you're here and you're, and you're, and you're lost. Maybe you're sad. Maybe you're, maybe you're going through a lot. Maybe for you, it's just, why don't, you, why don't you just take this moment to turn to Jesus and find rest? Or maybe you hear these things and things are going pretty well in this season, praise God. And you're just, you're just reminded of how great God is. Well then, rise up and rejoice as if Jesus rose from the dead. Amen. Because he did. So for all of us, in whatever way you need to, this is the time to stand to your feet and to turn to Jesus in praise. Let's praise him.